Thank you for listening to the Convergence House of Prayer podcast. Please enjoy this message by guest speaker, Pastor Dean Briggs. Well, so good to see you guys here this morning. Yeah, so good. So good to worship the Lord together, be in together. I'm ready for what God's going to do the rest of the way, right? So when we get out today at 4 o'clock, you guys will be, I'm teasing. Well, we have the joy of having Dean Briggs here. How many uh, have read Dean's book, Ecclesia Rising? Put your hand up real high. Come on. I know there's more people who have read it than that. All right. So, so here's the book, Ecclesia Rising. And I just want to sh- share just a brief testimony about that. I picked this book up probably two years ago uh, and, and really started to, I mean, I've always kind of, was always interested in Ecclesia, but the way Dean broke it down, uh, and the way he, he uh, articulated the scripture, which is really super important to me, going deep, understanding the, the background, the context, uh, he just made it, he made Ecclesia come alive to me. And that was kind of like the, the, the beginning of my journey with the Lord. And uh, so this is how I met Dean right here initially was through his book. And, um, and so we kind of, struck a, a cool relationship, friendship. We, uh, he gave me a call and he said, I heard you like the book. I don't know what he said. Anyway, I'm, uh, I'm in uh, uh, somewhere down in Southern Cal and you're in NorCal. I heard you went to the Philippines preaching it and heard great things. Let's go to lunch. So we kind of came, we kind of met somewhere in the valley, somewhere. I can't remember what the name of that town, something. Amazing Mexican restaurant though. I remember that. Shrimp tacos, the best shrimp tacos I've ever had in my life, man. That was amazing. I go, I take a two and a half hour drive just to go to that restaurant again. But Dean's fasting right now, so anyway, this. Uh, so anyway, we met together, hung out, and uh, know that he was he's been running with Lou Engel uh, for several years. Uh, if you guys, how many of you guys know Lou? Lou, how many of you guys know Lou? All right, so. So, yeah, so he'll, he might be doing this, you know. Uh, Dean might be doing this. Because uh, you hang around Lou, you just start moving back and forth. And, um, and so, uh, so we just, you know, got on the phone several times, and I just said, hey, you know, we're talking about Ecclesia and how the Lord is using the message and, and really the, what he said in Matthew 16, 18. And you, you, we've been on a journey for two, two years, two and a half years with that. So there's no need for me to define that for you. Um, and so in our conversation, I said, you know, let's, let's, hey, why don't you, he's from the Midwest, you know, he's from Oklahoma. Because y'all know where Oklahoma's at? So uh, Oklahoma, Midwest guy, he lives in Kansas City, uh, has eight kids. And uh, yeah, and some, yeah, prayer. Um, and uh, he, it's awesome. he might share a little bit about that, but um, and so I just said, hey, why don't, you, why don't you, let's fly you out to Fremont. Why don't you come and minister? We've talked a lot about Ecclesia Rising. And I would encourage you, if you don't have this book, we do uh, have, I don't know how many copies you brought, Dean, but we, we are selling those. And, uh, and quite honest with you, there's a, little, there's a little brag that I have right here in the book, right here, Greg Seamus. He actually put it in there. So called me up and I said, Ecclesia is a paradigm shifting book, a must read for all houses of prayer. Anyway, pastors and church leaders, like that was the best one. I've read them all, man. And that's, 
I don't know why that's not on the top, but we put it on the bottom. That's okay. It's on the first page. So that's, that's good. You know I'm teasing, right? You guys all know I'm teasing. But I'm not teasing about me being... Anyway. Um, so, so uh, oh yeah, so come on out and be in Fremont and just kind of... Um, Let's talk a little bit of strategy, what God's doing in the nation and around the world. And uh, so we have the privilege of having Dean minister today. And I want you guys to give him a super warm welcome as he comes. Dean Briggs, why don't you come up and minister? Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I begged to be on the floor because I pace a lot, so apologies to the video team if this is harder. Uh, oh, I just went off here. So, um, two or three things just by way of introduction. It's great to be here. Uh, I, I could not believe it last night when, when Greg and I were sitting and visiting, and he looked at me and said, now, where is Oklahoma? <laughs> he said, is that over, uh, like, north of Kentucky? <laughs> and so we had a quick geography lesson on the United States. And I know for, for, for uh, my influential, uh, blessed California friends, everything between where you are and where New York City is is essentially the flyover states. <laughs> But, uh, hello, my name's Dean Briggs. I am an American. <laughs> I belong to you. Uh, a, a, a little bit about myself. I do have eight kids. My kids came to me exponentially. <laughs> Let me tell you what that means. Most children arrive into a family of love linearly. You start with one, right? That's how it normally happens. There are a few exceptions to that, but you start with one, and, and so that's what happened with my wife and I, uh, and then we had our second, so one, two, that's, we're still linear there. Then I had twins, so it was one, two, four. Uh, my late wife, uh, it's been um, 13 years ago now, she passed away. In fact, I was very moved today in worship uh, I, I pastored a church for 11 years, and uh, the first funeral, it was a young adult church, the fu- first funeral I had to attend as a pastor was for my wife. And, um, but we sang it as well. And I was, just, uh, I was just here worshiping this morning. That was powerful worship, and I was just uh, remembering the, the story and the journey uh, of God's goodness. So I remarried uh, a young lady here who, uh, if Scott has ever talked about uh, some friends of his, uh, Scott Hagen was a pastor in Sacramento area, and uh, the woman I married was baptized in Scott Hagen's bathtub. Scott Hagen and, and Greg were friends. They were in each other's weddings, grew up together. Uh, or college, or I don't know what all it was, but uh, so uh, 
My wife, Jeannie, lost her husband. She lived here in California most of her life. She lost her husband in an auto accident on I-5. He was killed instantly. And um, uh, Now, I know in California, this is something I noticed as a Midwesterner, Californians put the article V in front of every road. So it was the I-5, the 5. You, you, you do the 101 in L.A., you do the whatever, the, right? Does everyone, you all don't even know it, but see, we're more economical in the Midwest. We don't need that. There's only one Interstate 5, so I don't need to say the I-5, as if there's several we're choosing between. It's just I-5. Anyway, uh, so uh, we met and married and fell in love, and she had four kids. So I went one, two, four, eight. That's exponential. And I quit because you can see the next number coming. And that, that seemed like a, a, a bad idea. So we are happy with our eight. Uh, my youngest two are seniors in high school. They range from 18 to 28. Three are married. I have one uh, grandbaby on the way. I'm so excited I can hardly stand it. Uh, that's a little bit of my story. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I'm excited because I know that you guys have been well instructed for two years. Uh, I've, I've uh, talked with Greg enough, really enjoyed getting to know him, look forward to getting to know Wendy. Uh, hi, Wendy. <laughs> hi, Wendy. Hey. Uh, uh, but uh, we, we've, we've shared some good um, recollections and insights together. I'm, I'm really impressed with what God is doing here. But that made it challenging for me because when I'm going to teach Ecclesia for the first time in a lot of places, you, you start in one spot, Matthew 16. Uh, when I get to uh, talk to people that are further along, now I can go 10 different directions. And so I really had to, to ponder and, and uh, think about it. I have a couple of presentations. I, I honestly don't know if I'm going to spend more time on this or might move through it quickly and get to the second one or th- throw it all away. But uh, I want to, I think I want to start here with the triune purpose of God. And uh, Greg, thank you for, uh, again, just for opening up the doors to this ecclesia. Can we pray? I know I'm, I've already been prayed for, but God, thank you. Um, Thank you that you gather your people together and there's always a purpose when they gather. And so God, I'm asking for the full purpose of God to be manifest here today. I'm asking for your bag of goodies to open up, for your love for your children to rain down, for the the sovereign purpose of God to be manifest in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul talked to the Corinthians and he said, We interpret spiritual things among those that are spiritual. I really like that because I feel like we can interpret some spiritual things here today. Uh, I don't feel like I'm starting from scratch. So this is an Ecclesia 101. And yet, in what I want to do with this this little presentation is visually uh, frame 
some of the various ideas and structures and concepts that the New Testament presents. There's a lot of language that that, uh, Jesus and Paul and Peter and James and the writers of the New Testament give to various aspects of who God is and who the people of God are. And sometimes we don't necessarily know how they all fit. Now, I'm admitting on the front end, uh, you might be able to organize this a little differently. And I think there's room for that. So this isn't uh, hard and fast in an unchanging doctrinal kind of way. But I want a picture's worth a thousand words. I want to give a sense of how the New Testament holds together in its understanding of God and in it, therefore, its understanding of you because our identity flows from understanding him first and us second. So when we're talking about the triune purpose of God, can everyone see these okay? Is it too small for... uh, You guys just have to deal with it, I guess, but... uh, Isaiah 46 says, I'm God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Everyone say purpose. Purpose. It says, I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. This is one of those statements where God is big and unapologetic and he just lays it out and he says, pretty much... I know it all, I can do it all, and so I will. And you can resist that, you can argue with that, you can try to diminish that, but I'm God, I have a purpose. So when he talks about knowing the end from the beginning, from ancient times, and then he frames that basically all of history, he's saying, is a revelation of my purpose. There's, there's even the worst moments, the most confusing moments. What is happening in Nazi Germany? I'm not saying that was the purpose of God. I'm saying the story he is telling up to that point and after that point is still within the context of he's got this. He can bring beauty from ashes. He can tell uh, uh, amazing stories in the midst of tragedy. I just started with one in my own life. Out of tragedy, God still brought beauty, and I'm living in that beauty, and my quiver is doubly full. I got a lot of arrows, people. I'm going to outshoot all of you. My takeover plan, I'm telling all of my kids, I've been indoctrinating them for years. I want five grandkids from each of you. This is my takeover plan. Because if I live long enough, and they pass that on to their, my great-grandchildren... I'm going to have several basketball teams, right? So, God is going to accomplish his purpose. Now, if we jump ahead, we see Paul basically talking about what Isaiah prophesied. He says, he made known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will. Say the mystery of his will. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. For a while, my ministry was called Summation Ministries based on Ephesians 1.10. I'm really obsessed with the summing up of all things in Christ. That phrase I can never get away from. 
Whatever you're doing, whatever air you're breathing, whatever resources you are consuming is not local to you. It is about the mystery of his will, an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, and the summing up of all things in Christ. Everything you're doing and everything the unbeliever does thinking he defies God is still pointing to a complete closure moment in history where everything is and always has been and shall be realized as being him. So he made known to us the mystery of his will. That's another word for purpose. So Isaiah prophesied that he has a purpose and he's going to do it. He knows the end from the beginning. And Paul says he made known to us his purpose. Now we're in Ephesians and a number of verses come before this and a number of verses come after this all about the ecclesia. So the context is he made known to the ecclesia. And one important point I want to draw out right from the beginning is the ecclesia is a corporate entity. You individually are not ecclesia. You corporately are ecclesia. He made known to us. It says we have the mind of Christ. Sometimes we preach that wrong. We say you have the mind of Christ. We have Christ dwelling within. We have the character of Christ. We have a lot of stuff. But when we're talking about the mind of Christ, that's a we. There are dimensions of the reality of Christ that are meant to be exerted. The influence, governance that is I can say to this mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea, but if I really want to know the intricacies of God's purpose in very confusing times, I need to get two or three with me. So that there's, there's balance and understanding and, 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 and that thing doesn't look just white, it doesn't look just Asian, it doesn't look just African American. It is a mix of the understanding so that we have the mind of Christ. The administration is suitable to the summing up of all things in the heavens and things on the earth. So the ecclesia is meant to be an agency of purpose, corporately speaking, to understand the mind of God and bring heaven to earth. Well, I want to be on that team because that sounds pretty good. So let's, uh, let's just ponder the Trinity for a second. Because this is who Isaiah said had the whole picture of time in mind and a purpose in mind. This is who Paul said God has an administration. The administration begins at the highest levels. The governance of heaven is, is an expression of the total, undivided, harmonious unity of thought and expression of the triune God. One of the reasons the ecclesia is so critical to God's heart is because uh, it's how we are meant to start mimicking the unbroken fellowship that God has among himself. You know, there's not a, there's not a point in, in heaven, in the administration of heaven, where they're sitting in council together 
And God the Father throws out an idea and the son's like, eh, I'm just not sure about that. I have a better idea. Or the Holy Spirit's, you know, over there saying, you know what, guys, I'd like to just put a poll before you. Let's get some consensus on this because normally we're always disagreeing. You know, that sort of thing. And even that is kind of confusing language because it's three in one. But it's one in three. So, I'm going to try to break this down to some, some human metaphors that I think can help. God the Father could be considered the architect. The architect is the one that has the grandmaster plan, the, the, the big idea, the full understanding. The Son is the builder. And so the Son is the one who executes. Uh, uh, my father was, uh, he passed away, but uh, he had a, a, a metal manufacturing and roofing company. And so he worked with builders and he was, uh, for roofing projects, he was the builder. And so there's always this interaction in a building crew. You've got the architect, you've got the builder, and then you have the foreman. The foreman has crew, the crew and tools. And, and you could add some other job descriptions in there, but in a big general way, we could say this is a, 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 a poor but useful expression of the roles and, and uh, uh, primary application of the Trinitarian design. Are you all with me so far? So, there's not a hard line between any of these things. They are three in one, but there's an architectural application, there's a building application, and there's an on-the-ground actually get the work done. That's the foreman with the crew and tools. So, When we're looking at this, we're still talking about divine purpose, the administration suitable for the fullness of times, the summing up of all things in Christ. This is just words I'm throwing out there to help us get there. So the Father, as the architect, interestingly, they're all pointing to the Son. The Father, as the architect, has given all authority to Christ. He loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. All things. The Son has the fullness of deity dwelling in him, and he does all the Father's will. I want you just to see the the perfect mutual submission, honor, and purpose that is in God's heart, knowing the end from the beginning, to bring about his purpose in history and the summing up of all things in Christ. So, Even though the fullness of deity dwells in the Son and He does all the Father's will, He also said, I'm here to connect you back to my Father. The Holy Spirit guides into all truth. He baptizes us into Christ and He empowers us for kingdom purpose. Now I could throw more verses and phrases at this and nuance it more and and, and uh, flesh out the point. But do you, do you see that Trinitarian construct with the Father as the architect 
And the architect needs a builder. The architect can't actually do it. He has grandmaster designs, blueprints for history, but he needs someone to translate that into the actual plan that incorporates others being brought into the project, designating the, 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 the property in which the building will take place. That's called planet Earth. Assembling the related parties. The builder has to, to, to work with a number of other entities and, and actually figure out how to execute and deliver the architect's grand design. And then the builder relies on his foreman who has the right crew and the right tools to get the job done. So if there is a, a unity of purpose here between the architecture of the Father, the building of the, 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 the on-the-ground uh, tools of the Holy Spirit and the building of the Son then this helps us understand when the son said what he was going to build. Because we have to understand, here's the point of all of this. We have to understand that what he's building is unto all of that other stuff I've been talking about already. He's not just trying to get an ecclesia. He's building an ecclesia so that his father can have the grand design. The ecclesia is not the end of the story, it's the beginning of the building. So the last thing we want to do is make an idol out of ecclesia. We want ecclesia to serve its purpose in how we think and how we interact and how we understand what his purpose is and how we fit into that. And so Jesus said, I'm building my ecclesia. So that then the rest of the revelation of scripture can tell us how we're building what he came to proclaim, which was the kingdom of God. Jesus only talked a couple times about the ecclesia. Paul expounded on it greatly. What Jesus talked about constantly was the kingdom. And so Paul helps us understand how we connect those dots as the ecclesia to be formed around Christ in the purpose of the builder to get the same thing done that he came and proclaimed. So in that sense, there is, we could say, a top-level formation of divine purpose that the entire Trinity is invested in, and all of us are an ecclesia. The fivefold ministry exists to help develop the ecclesia, not to do the work that the ecclesia does. The days of the professional ministry class are rapidly ending. The point of the fivefold ministry is, and this is what I love about the culture you all are developing here, you are understanding you're the professional ministry class wherever you are. So apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are continually helping the ecclesia understand their governing influence, their marketplace influence, their legislative influence, their prayer influence, their sacrificial servanthood influence. All of these things, those anointings exist to develop the full structure so that the ecclesia can, this is why Jesus said, I really want this. I'm building this 
Because that has a multiple, an exponential. Look at just the story of my kids. Not one, two, three, stop. One, two, four, eight. When the ecclesia gets empowered, now everyone is everywhere ministering in the power of God. There's other aspects that could be brought to this, but uh, I'm going to focus on four aspects of the ecclesia. Now, you've learned this in different ways uh, from Greg's teaching, but ecclesia is all about agreement. If two of you on earth agree about anything, here's the brilliance of Jesus. We have spent so much time focusing on mass agreement. And we aren't getting anywhere. I think last count, there are between 32 and 40,000 Protestant denominations. Can you imagine? 40,000 Protestant denominations. And some of it is, I disagree with the color of this carpet. And you switched from pews to chairs, and the sacred space is no longer sacred, so we're going to start our own thing. That, the, the degree of division is a function of many things, many, many things. But the degree of division is a function of completely misunderstanding purpose. We aren't coming together to celebrate the carpet and the chairs. This is an amazing facility and it could burn to the ground and the ecclesia would be unaffected. In fact, you see in God's sovereign purpose in history how he allowed the things that seemed like major setbacks just to spread the leaven a little bit more. So when there was persecution or setbacks or things burned down and the ecclesia were like, we can't all stay here in a group because they'll find us and they scatter, God just leavened the lump a little bit more. The ecclesia is unbeatable. Wherever two or three gather together, he's in their midst. Now I'm skipping ahead, that's presence. I want to stay on agreement. Agreement is critical in this equation. Now, I wrote Ecclesia Rising primarily around, I mean, the subtitle is The Authority of Christ in Communities of Contending Prayer. And it's all about wherever you are, I don't care if you're a dental hygienist, a, a, a lawyer, a doctor, a plumber, a student, even the lowly pastor, Right? <laughs> Wherever you are, you can get together with at least one other and you can become a ruling influence in your territory. You can decide what happens in that office. You can decide what happens in school policy. It may not come easily. It may be a struggle because we've let so much of our influence slip that it takes a while just to get back to zero. But if we don't start engaging in groups of two and three, wherever we are, in all the stuff that the ecclesia does, but my passion point is prayer. Yeah. 
And I believe that's the starting point for real influence wherever you are. So if two or three agree together. Now the brilliance of Jesus is he had every word mean something. Do you know how often people come together, but they aren't agreeing together? And so Jesus gave the lowest common denominator for agreement, two. It's really practical here, because I can, as one, you know, I can argue with myself, and I do, but I always win. If I'm arguing with myself, I'm always going to win. But the moment there is one other person with me, we have just now raised the possibility of disagreement. And so we have just now created the atmosphere of heaven in potential. Let me say that again. Because there is complete agreement among the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, two or three, He's led, he is authorizing recreate us on earth. Because Jesus said it only takes two or three. So the moment you get together with someone else and there is the potential for disagreement, you have, by virtue of your coming together for a different purpose in the administration of the fullness of the times and the summing up of all things in Christ, to come together for that purpose and get the mind of God is to say, in the exact place where division and disagreement is possible, and that is the entire story of Satan's work. Deception and division, deception and division, deception and division. Now we gain truth and agreement. And only two or three is required, and it's the bare minimum, and Jesus actually is saying, quit trying harder than the brilliance of my design. Because the moment you set your goal, I was a small church pastor, rural Missouri. Missouri's also right, right there. It's north of Oklahoma and east, Kansas, Missouri. Uh, small church, uh, uh, rural pastor, and, and I, I know the struggles of small church thinking because we'll always say numbers don't matter and then every Sunday we're looking and counting. And then you think, okay, we've got 50. We, how, man, we could be so effective if we just got to 100. And then you get to 100 and you think, man, we could be so effective if we got to 200. And there's some of that that's natural, and I'm not trying to diminish some of the practical applications of that. But Jesus linked our authority not to the size of the covenanted prayer community, but to their constitution. If two or three of you agree together, agree together, agree together, so the constitution of your community is more important than the fervency of your prayers. Get two or three to agree together. And in that place, 
You are the ecclesia because you have a revelation of how big he is and how small you are is no longer part of the equation. So that's why Matthew 16 is so critical that it starts with revelation. Jesus didn't even go there till three years into his ministry. Plenty of opportunity to form mental calculations and assessments and get it right and get it wrong. And he didn't validate Peter in that moment because of any of that. Because there had already been some before the Matthew 16 in, in, in Jesus' ministry on earth where some had said, could this be the Christ? So people were floating that word out there and had different ideas. And Jesus said, what do other people say? They gave the list. And he made it personal. What do you say? Peter made his confession and Jesus singled him out as blessed in history because this wasn't one plus one equals two. It was divine revelation. And once there was true divine revelation that he's the guy, right? He's the one that was prophesied in Genesis 3. The ink wasn't dry dry yet. On the covenant of death, before Jesus, before uh, God visits Adam and Eve and the serpent and announces the one to come. It's going to restore it. It's going to crush the serpent's head. It's going to change everything. A human from the seed of the woman. So from the very beginning of the story, history is prophesying. It's that Isaiah passage. He knows what he wants from the end to the beginning. And he's telling them, okay, you just blew it, but you have no idea how complete my recovery plan is. So it's working its way up through all the prophetic types. It's going to be Abraham. It's not going to be Japheth or Ham. It's going to be the line of Shem. And Abram comes along and his name's changed to Abraham and the promise in Isaac who's the sacrificial type of Christ and the, 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 the contending son, Jacob, that the whole nation is named for. He was a bum. There's nothing to admire in Jacob except that he loved the idea of having the favor of God on his life. God said, I can take a bum who wants my favor and I'll build a nation. And it narrows down and we know it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and it's going to be David's son. And now David is writing in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 about the one who will receive the inheritance of nations and ask of me, and I will, I will give you the nations. And, and the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. And now we're talking about a global conqueror. And all of history is looking for that guy And he shows up in the ones that are most schooled but are looking for a natural conqueror according to the law can't see him. But in a brilliant burst of blinding revelation, Peter's, his eyes are open and he says, you're that guy. We've been waiting so long to meet you. And Jesus says, 
who wasn't flesh and blood, is my father. You just dialed in to the architect. He showed you that I'm the builder. So now that you know who I am, let me tell you what I'm building. And so all of that identity of our influence and role and purpose is welded to the revelation of Christ. So if we agree about anything, it only takes two or three because our revelation is not on the two or three, it's on Him. Where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. The ecclesia is all about presence. The ecclesia is all about revelation. I will give you keys of the kingdom of heaven. Wherever you are, whatever the obstacle is, that obstacle should be thought of as a door with a lock. There is transformation on your campus that is locked up behind a door that is fortified by the enemy because he knows. See, we, th- we look at a lock and we think that's a barrier, right? In, in this entire room, there's, there's a door there and a door there, and they have locks on them. And so if I go and I hit the lock and I can't get in, I think that's the strongest point because it's the, it's the, uh, it's the point that's locked. Actually, no, the walls are much harder. The door is there with a lock because there's a hole cut in the wall that says, if you get the key right, you can actually get through here. So castles and fortifications would build massive reinforcements around the gate because the gate was the natural weak point. So when Jesus, as the Lord of history, says, I got a bunch of keys to give you. He's saying everything that feels locked up to you, bound up, denied, that causes you to lose heart, lose faith, this will never change because it's locked. I can't get through here. No, the very fact that you've discovered the lock means there's a key. So wherever you are, In whatever circumstance you're in, if two or three get together, you're in agreement, his presence is among you. When his presence is among you in agreement, he comes with keys. And he gives these keys, and these keys we see all through scripture. There was a massive flood coming. What in the world do we do about that? God gave a man named Noah a key. Build a boat. When the Israelites are complaining, they're thirsty, they don't know what to do. They're out in the desert. What do you do? The last thing I would think of is, I think I'm going to go hit that rock. Right? But there was revelation. What to do, what rock to hit, when to hit it. And out of that came a stream of supply in the middle of a desert. Gideon is outnumbered by an army, and he, has, he gets some of the hardest keys of all. Gideon, 
Your 30,000, which is already smaller than the opposing army, is way too big. Here's the first key. Lose some of the guys. See, keys open doors because they dial into faith, and faith is the currency of heaven. You don't get revelation that breaks through by simply exerting some dimension of your own power, wisdom, reasoning, or authority. You get revelation that pushes you into the place of faith. And faith is something the enemy has no governance of, so that's your supernatural territory. So lose the men, now lose more. This is a horrible battle plan. It's brilliant keys. So he gets down to 1% of his strength. Loses 99% of his strength. And then in the 1%, it's even more ridiculous. Get some clay pitchers and some torches and some trumpets. God, what about the swords? Ah, we don't really need those for this battle. You got 300 guys. And you got to understand, we read with all of the glory of hindsight. You need to be Gideon for a moment. Be him at that moment. I've been to the Valley of Jezreel. I've seen the mountain where, where, where this happened. It's actually in the, the whole plain of Armageddon. And you can see the, the ridge line where Gideon would have stood. He's got 300 guys against an army of 40, 50, 60,000 guys down below. He says, okay, guys, um, let's break the pot and we'll yell and blow the trumpet and, and shout the sword of the Lord and the sword of Gideon. They didn't actually have swords. They just said, shout it. But the key was as good as a hundred thousand swords. With the keys, then you legislate. Gates of Hades will not overcome it. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So the construct is ecclesia, but the expression is multifaceted. You've heard these different phrases, the bride of Christ, the sons of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's all ecclesia language, but it has different emphases. It has different uh, tuning frequencies. It has different application. As the bride of Christ, this took me a while as a man, just kind of felt weird about that. Does any, uh, yeah, can anyone, any, any guys here, can you relate? Come on, yeah, took me a while. Like, I'm the bride of Christ. Oh, Jesus, I love you. <laughs> Kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. Song of Solomon was foreign language to me. But the bride isn't about a woman or a man. It's about the masculine and the feminine dimensions that are true spiritual principles and women embody the feminine and men embody the masculine, but 
in the design of God, both are created in his image and they were originally one and then they were separated. But I carry within me something that can relate to Christ as a bride. And ladies, you carry within you something that can relate to God as sons. So within the ecclesia construct, the bride is an expression of that. And the bride is a corporate reality that is designed for the ecclesia to get revelation through intimacy. Sons are an expression of the father. The bride is related to Christ. It is primarily vertical. It is corporate, vertical, and related to Christ. The bride doesn't actually relate to the father. The bride relates to Christ. And it's the corporate vessel of intimacy, the corporate expression of intimacy by which we get revelation. Sons is also corporate. He's bringing many sons to glory. But sons are about sonship and adoption, and that is really about how authority gets expressed on the earth. I teach a Bible class for uh, my uh, kids, the juniors and seniors, and I have a a lady who's an assistant, and she comes in and takes roll call and, and does some basic stuff before class starts, but she really prefers for me to call out the kids' names because they respond differently to my voice than to her voice. And... This is part of the design of the home and it's part of the pain of single mothers. Is they have to have, single mothers have to exert male authority which is not naturally their design. Because there is authority in the voice that is part of that masculine expression. And so this is why he's raising up a bride full of passionate love equal to the love that Christ has for the ecclesia, Ephesians 5, 4, 5. (laughs) But he also has a kingdom to expand, and a king, this is why Isaiah 9 says, that unto us a child is born, unto us a son must be given. I've been watching a show on Netflix or something that's about the period of the War of the Roses in the 1400s and all of the very complicated court dynamics. And at this time, there were like three contenders for the throne. And everything about the validity of the king throughout the reign of of European and Asian monarchies and uh, emperors and kings, it was all about whether or not there was a son that would be given. And so the legitimacy of a king's rule and the spread of his kingdom required a son. So they say a son must be given. Why? Because in the design of God, the government will rest on his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. That's why a son must be given because there's actually a government God wants on earth that looks like heaven. 
That's not about theocracy. It's about dominion. So the bride is about intimacy and sons are about authority because intimacy moves God's heart, but dominion gives him honor. So we don't just love God, we expand his territory with values and culture. We are ambassadors. The, 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 the king's most trusted ambassadors would be his sons. You can send another ambassador, but if the son shows up, you've got the king's voice. And the Holy Spirit is building us as living stones. And I want you to notice how the bride and sons and temple are all corporate. You have a bridal dimension individually. I have a sonship dimension individually. We have a stone fitted into the temple individually. But the ecclesia is corporate. And so the bride is corporate and he's bringing many sons to glory. And the temple is composed of many living stones. Holy Spirit's work through the temple, the ecclesia as a temple, is about a place where he abides and doesn't ever leave. This is why he says, I'm really looking for a lot of two or threes to get together because I like being saturating every square inch of earth. Every office every location, every home. See, the brilliance of God in the garden, we don't often think this way, but he constituted an ecclesia in the garden. It just took him about 4,000 years to explain it. He created one, and Adam said, it's actually not good that I'm alone. And he, he set it up for Adam to realize this. He brought all the other animals who had a mate suitable to them. And Adam named them all. He had to go through the process of recognizing his inadequacy as one. And so God brought all the pairs of animals. And I want you to think about the authority in that original son. What is that thing that's big and gray, skin like leather, a nose that droops to the ground, uh, 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 legs like tree stumps. I mean, imagine if we had to communicate to each other every time by describing the thing and all of the countless animals. And he brings all of these to his first son, not the only begotten son, not the son of God, the first human son. And he says, bring order to the chaos. Name it. So we call it an elephant because that's the authority we have to take chaos and give it a name and shape it and harness it and bring it under our dominion. And so an elephant's called an elephant in heaven in whatever language it is, it's an elephant. It's a snake. It's a cow. It's a bird. See, you face different chaos points in your life and you have no idea that God is actually bringing those things through and before you so that as an ecclesia, either individually in your, in your relationship to God, if it's a mountain or in terms of corporate strategies and resistance that require breakthrough, he's bringing those things to you because he loves to see what you're about to do with it, to name it and bring it under dominion. 
So you take a challenge that's too confusing. Do you know the world has no idea how to solve 98% of the problems that are out there? They have more money. In many respects, they have more skill because we haven't properly emphasized the people in the marketplace getting the stuff done. They have so much strategy and insight and politics and power and they can't solve it. They can't solve it. And these are chaos moments. We are being given a new Edenic opportunity. If we can start to get our heads and our hearts around what he's building, then when he brings those things and it's too complex and confusing, you can't create 15 more laws to solve this problem. But you can wrap your head around the ultimate purpose of God and the administration of the ages and the summing up of all things in Christ. You get two or three together. You say, this is the problem. You name it. You get the key to the door. You bust it open. Check that one off the list. Move to the next. So now you have the dynamics of heaven funneling down to the two or three. That's that Celtic cross, Celtic uh, knot. I have one on my ankle. I'm I'm that cool at 50 years old, right? (laughs) I have a little ankle tattoo. Covered up by my socks and my... No, you, you take the dynamic of heaven in the Trinitarian expression and you funnel it through an ecclesia construct and a bridal sonship habitation expression. And with all those dynamics, you recreate then two or three agreeing. And in every sphere... You start to bring fullness and health and power and dominion and transformation and unity and gifts because the foreman has all kinds of good gifts, right? He's got all kinds of good stuff to give so that the ecclesia actually have the tools to get it done. When you get together, you aren't alone in that moment. You are more prepared than ever to get it done. Because he's got the gifts you need, the wisdom and the insight you need, and he'll unleash fullness through you. He'll, I, it's, I love the testimonies that were happening. People are getting healed. There's, there's breakthrough in businesses and homes. That's how it looks. Because heaven has been produced on earth everywhere the ecclesia touches the ground. Let's stand. I have no idea why I thought I was actually going to get through a second presentation. (laughs) Yeah, if the worship team could come up. I just want us to, there's not really an altar call or anything. I just want us to take whatever grace, anointing, and revelation is in this moment. And I just want us to open up our hearts and ask God, uh, uh, we're going to add a new construct to the bride, the temple, and the sons Today we are holy sponges. And we just want to absorb. We want our spirit to absorb 
everything in, the, in this moment so that uh, we aren't just locked in the cerebrality. I think I just made up a word, but <laughs> we aren't just locked in the cerebral nature of, of, of this. I really I want, I want this to carry revelation to your spirit. So, I, yeah, you get, okay, we aren't there yet. I thought we were. Let's just, actually, let's just pray in the spirit. God, we love you. We worship you. Pray in, 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 in your language, uh, pray in English, pray in Spanish, pray in Chinese, pray in the spirit. I just want us to, this is, this is when you do this, you edify yourself. You speak mysteries over your own life. Those mysteries are coming from the architect and the builder and the foreman because he wants to seat you into your place in the corporate ecclesia even more. God, we open up our spirit to you. We make ourselves as completely available as possible. We fully mentally surrender and assent and invite you emotionally, physically, spiritually. We make all of us available to all of you. God, I'm asking for dimensions of bridal intimacy to overtake this ecclesia, this fellowship like never before. I'm asking for dimensions of authority as sons of God and revelation like never before. I'm asking for the unique fit of the stones into this corporate temple like never before. God, I'm asking for the territories of offices and homes and college campuses and construction sites grocery stores banks blue bottle coffee shops God we just say prophetically and boldly and apostolically that's our turf this is just where we come together that's our turf God, we declare that you are not waiting on revival. David said in the Psalms, he shall have dominion from sea to sea. God, we're asking from sea to sea and all the flyover states. Let the dominion of Christ, the wisdom, the beauty, the revelation, the fullness. God, we are your ecclesia. We get to be part of the grand design, the biggest story being told. It's the best life. It's the richest life. It's the fullest life. You've given us authority. You've given us keys. You put things in our hand to open doors that no man can shut. 
God, I'm asking for a holy restlessness when we lay our hand to a door that's closed. God, I'm asking for a holy restlessness in your people that says that door should be open and I will not yield it. God, I'm asking for a fresh outpouring of revelation, even in how you've moved in my life, in, in, our, in our movement and lose life in dreams. I'm asking if you want, I just, if you want a fresh impartation of dreams, I want you to put out your hands. God, I'm asking, I impart a spirit of night wisdom. The spirit of revelation in the night. I'm asking for a spirit of revelation in the night, God. The dreams and the visions that deliver the mysteries of God beyond what we can consciously receive, but you deposit it into the vessel of rest. You deposit it into the vessel of rest so that when we wake, we know our mission. It's beyond the enemy's grasp because it's told in symbols and it takes faith. God, I'm asking for an impartation of the dreams of heaven, the last day's language. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. God, the last day's language, speak it to our souls. I'm loosing dreams on this community, God. If you guys got a song, let's, uh, we'll, we'll sing. We'll just linger here for a moment. All of 
why worship is critical because in times where you have lost the revelation of Christ and your prayers feel weak and empty, you boast in Him, you glorify Him, you restore Him to the proper place. He didn't diminish, your view did. And in worship, we see Him once again as He is. And we're recommissioned to the purpose with strength. Let's sing it one more time, hallelujah, just the chorus and then we'll close. you enjoyed this message. For more messages like this, please subscribe and thank you for listening.